Volume 1, The American Occult, Episode 3, The Idiot's Guide to Elementals. Among the various theories, practices, and strange happenings detailed in his books, the biggest controversy centered on the Chevalier's belief in and interaction with a complex hierarchy of elemental and celestial spirits that the occult adept could control and wield to achieve magical results. It's a little goofy, but probably the best way to think about elementals is to imagine them as nature spirits. Fairies, gnomes, sylphs of the air, undines of the water, dryads of the forest, and salamanders. And by salamanders, I mean fire spirits, not the lizards that live under your shed. Oh, darn. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) The Chevalier didn't speak about elementals in this way, talking about them in a more abstract space. Elementals for the Chevalier were invisible and disembodied, bound to the matter of the natural world, but existing at a remove from our earthly senses. They were a spiritual missing link, creating a perfect evolutionary scheme from elementary to human to celestial spirit. This was a way of working Darwin into American occultism. He did the evolution stuff, right? Guinea pigs or... Wasn't it guinea pigs? Yeah, uh, guinea pigs to corgis. And then from I'm sorry, what? We're talking about Darwin, right? (laughs) You're saying guinea pigs evolved into into corgis? Are guinea pigs elementals? Okay, and then they turn into, like, like, like cats. Wait, so so Darwin uh, (laughs) introduced this evolutionary theory in the 1850s that really changed the way people thought about science and the world and culture. Um, it was a huge challenge to uh, American religion. They, they couldn't figure out how to work in this scheme of evolution into their whole system of the way God had created us perfectly in seven days. We're still having this debate today, right? Every day. Every day. <laughs> I, Every I seven days. I wake up and I discuss this. Yep. <laughs> so occultism, uh, part of their project in the 1870s, especially in America and Europe, was to work evolution into a spiritual scheme. And the way the Chevalier did it was through this evolutionary progress of the soul. There was an evolution of souls from elementary to human. And then if you were super awesome, you could become a guardian or a celestial spirit hovering above so all that's my goal in life yeah right, so i could become <laughs> a fairy <laughs> yes well or no. a salamander you used to be a fairy or a salamander you could oh, become I knew it. a planetary <laughs> angel higher than that <laughs> all right my name's <laughs> rob thompson i am the supreme hierophant of the secret order of alchemical actors i'm here with our grandmaster olivia literal what's up and our discussants uh today from the secret order are going to be uh, shannon landers hi and Jacob Wheatley, That's me. Who, who you may remember from earlier episodes. This is Occult Confessions. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. A few months before publishing Art Magic, the Chevalier's editor, Emma Harding Britton, related a story in the popular spiritualist journal, The Banner of Light, about encountering kobolds, or earth spirits, in the mines adjacent to Dovedale, near Derbyshire, England. Hearing word from a Mr. and Mrs. Hart that these little gnomes frequently appeared within the mines, she planned an investigation, staying overnight in a miner's house. Ew. 
Was it they like a uh, mining for rocks that and still sounds illegal coal and oh, gems like and things? Not a what about a, a minor miner? Are you saying like a fourteen year old who yes. digs for yes, coal? Yes, I am. What about him? I just want to know or more her. about his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't, don't be gender explicit. <laughs> <laughs> the miner and his children left for the night, and his wife Maria and Mrs. Hart waited with Britain. They sat by the fireplace and they waited for the kobolds to appear. Suddenly. A stack of logs tumbled over, an ethereal light shone, and there was a sound of knocking behind the back wall. The knocks got steadily louder until they sounded throughout the house, and the noise prompted Maria to explain that the knocking was just the way of the place. Yes, you do. Then, right at that moment, Britain witnessed something amazing. She saw a crew of little humanoid creatures emerge, passing through the solid wall. There, to my astonishment, and I must confess with a thrill of deeper awe than I could account for or control, I saw a row of four lights as large as the veritable ostrich eggs which adorned the mantel shelf of the humble shanty. These lights were behind me, and I did not see them till attracted by the woman's explanation. I turned round and faced them. The faint outline of a miniature human form appeared in connection with each light. They were different sizes. None of them, however, were higher than four feet. They jumped up and down and threw out something which resembled hands toward me. As they moved, the lights danced and shimmered. These wonderful things at length retreated into the solid wall behind them, and the place where they had been was illuminated only by the light of the wood fire. Critics mocked and derided Britain for her belief in elemental spirits, and friends rushed to defend her, stirring up a very open public brawl in the spiritualist and occultist publications of the day. The caution to us, looking back on this episode over a hundred years later, is that we should not just dismiss Britain outright. We have prejudices based on assumptions that are almost as old as Britain's article, but those assumptions, insofar as they concern the existence or non-existence of worlds of being beyond the material universe, are just as culturally contingent and uncertain as Britain's kobolds. How about you guys? Do you believe that she saw these little mind spirits? Do you believe in kobolds? I mean, I see them all the time. I didn't realize... uh... Is that not normal? I mean, if they weren't real, that's a very embarrassing thing to claim, you know? Like, I don't feel like anyone willingly (laughs) wants to be like, oh, yes, I saw these little men. Yeah, it's it's a pretty bold claim. But different little men. The actual men who are small? Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) in Iceland, they actually will delay building projects because they believe that elves could possibly be... Uh, in the way or, or occupying the land that well, they want to build something on. Well, that's respectful of them. Yeah. That makes sense. And, uh, I mean, have you, ever, have you ever had sort of like a spiritual experience going out in nature, communing yep. with the trees? <laughs> My Wiccan? Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, I feel like you're not allowed to be a Wiccan and not do that. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that that's importing some sort of spiritual presence to the natural world. Yeah. So, uh, all right, fine, little men coming out of the walls. Only Shannon is on board with this. But... If we think about it that way, maybe it's not so crazy. A review of Art Magic in Woodhall and Claflin's Weekly warned that the kobolds have come, promising that this publication would be positively the last appearance and benefit of Emma Harding Britain. The subscribers to Art Magic, in our opinion, have been completely and successfully victimized. By far the most egregious absurdity is discoverable in that part relating to the elementaries and the ritual to be used for invoking, controlling, and discharging those interesting creatures after having caught and bottled them. Instead of the ritual given, it would have been equally sensible to have reprinted the witch scene in Macbeth or the invocations in Faust as the plagiarized rubbish of which this part of the book is full. 
Andrew Jackson Davis, one of the foremost philosophers of the spiritualist movement, best known for the thousands of pages he gave while in trance and for predicting the rise of spiritualism several years before the Hydesville wrappings, was unforgiving in his criticism of Britain's occultism. Speaking at the anniversary of the birth of modern spiritualism, which spiritualists placed on March 31, 1848, when the Fox sisters first communicated with their spirit raps, Davis slammed the new occultist trends in spiritualist circles. A mysterious magic wand has been waved at spiritualism until the great iron doors of perdition seemed about to shut against every chance of immortality. In her efforts to propagate magical spiritualism, we behold the illumination of Emma Harding Britain's vigorous imaginative intellect. <gasps> the recovery of this craft known as magical spiritualism has passed beyond the bounds of possibility. I do not believe in the identification of modern spiritualism and with ancient magic. I do not believe in the existence of either elemental or elementary spirits, nor in the existence of anything essentially evil. Um, I do not yeah, believe yeah, in yeah, reincarnation, right. okay. nor that any foreign spirit can displace or occupy the seat of the mind of any living man. Davis identified Helena Blavatsky as the leader of a fascinating inaccurate and pretentious movement that he called magical spiritualism. He named Olcott Britton and Pascal Beverly Randolph, a then-deceased spiritualist occultist, whose life and theories we'll consider later as her confederates. As of these co-occultists, Olcott was Britton's biggest defender at the time Art Magic was published. Davis lamented that Olcott had abandoned the spirit origin of the materialization phenomena, which he described as occurring at the eddies. But Davis overestimated Olcott's opinion of the eddy seances. The most he was willing to say of William Eddy's materialized spirits was that there was a possibility that by some occult control over now unknown forces of nature, beings other than those in the body can manifest their presence to sight, touch, and hearing. Were these materialization spirits, or were they something else? What do you think? Salamanders. Mm. Salamanders. What about, <laughs> were they elementals? Salamanders. Is that salamanders? Just, <laughs> not the lizard, she means uh, elementals. The yeah. elementals. Oh. Eddie, like Florence Cook and other full-form mediums, would confine himself in a cabinet in order to produce the fully embodied spirit. His cabinet was an open closet with a sheet hung over the doorway. After a period of concentration with William seated inside the cabinet, a spirit would suddenly pop through the curtain and amuse the audience. Yep, that sounds right. How do you expect this, this uh, feat of cultism was done? Definitely would have saw that and said, that's got to be real. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? If he's faking it, how is he faking it? He made someone hide in a closet cabinet for... Hours, possibly. Okay. <laughs> right, because the audience had to gather, yeah. and then there was a little violin music. So yeah. they're they're crouched inside this cabinet, mm -hmm. and then... And then he walks in, closes the curtain, new guy comes out. <laughs> nah, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't sound that hard to me. Uh, <laughs> this is the worst magic trick. Uh, so um, some, some there was a scientist uh, named George Miller Beard who believed that it was Eddie himself who dressed up. As the different characters and pop through. Okay, easier. Simplifying it. That's what I would do. <laughs> Except that the most frequent visitors to the Eddie's specially constructed seance room were American Indians. Specifically, an American Indian girl named Honto, whose physical appearance varied a whole lot from William's. Okay, weird. So he was large and round and white. <laughs> she was small and thin and dark complexioned. Henry Alcott checked the windows, the walls, and the floor of the cabinet to see if there was any means of sneaking another person into the room. He spoke with Wade and measured the spirits. He witnessed them make physical contact with other sitters. 
He did everything but sit in the cabinet with William as he produced these spirits, a test that was never allowed in any full-form seance. And he concluded very simply that he could not explain these spirits by any natural means he could discover. Did they try to touch Honto? Yes, Honto did let people touch her. So she was just a women. physical force. Yeah, oh. Generally just women, yeah. Well, she hmm. might make contact with a male person in the room. And the Florence Cook seances, um, Katie King, her spirit would actually touch people who were sitting in the room and flirt with them. And, and <laughs> yeah, in the Victorian age, that was like highly erotic so not stuff. A projection. Yeah. Mm. With a, a, you know, a woman you didn't weren't married to touching you right in public. Yeah. Uh, but for Honto, she exposed her chest um, not not all the way. Mm. Oh, just up, up to up to the areolas, Honto, please. And yep, she, we just got marked E. <laughs> areolas that did it. Yep. Uh, and she let a female member of the audience put her hand and feel her heart beating on her skin. I think I would have done oh. the same thing, except it just would have been men I was allowing to touch me. <laughs> <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> For otherworldly visitors transcending the boundary between life and death, uh, these spirits had very little to say on the bigger questions about God, the afterlife, or the nature of what they were. It was more like they were entertaining at a children's birthday party than serving as emissaries from another plane of being. I have watched the varying phases of the manifestations in the hope of seeing the elucidation of some law to explain their occurrence, and reconcile me to the same. Together with all other sensible men, I have deplored their puerile, absurd, and often repulsive character, and been shocked at the disgusting fallacies of free love, affinity, and individual sovereignty to which they have given birth. Those who have passed on before us into the silent land cannot and do not come back to spout sapphics through scrub women, nor swing through the air on a spiritual trapeze at the bidding of poverty-stricken mediums for the delectation of the gaping crowd. Still, if these materializations weren't the spirits of the dead, Alcott had the problem of determining what these strange beings he had witnessed at the Eddie Farm actually were. He'd seen them pop out of the cabinet in a whole range of different body types and costumes, drop through the solid floor up to their waist, and balance on a scale weighing far less than a body of their size should. Alcott was excited about the Chevalier's theories, in part because they began to offer an explanation for the strange materializations he witnessed in Chittenden, Vermont. According to the Chevalier, all beings emanate from a pure and perfect spiritual oneness. The earth was created by an overarching spirit to accommodate humanity, the highest expression of material existence. And humanity exists so that spirit can realize knowledge of love, wisdom, and power, which it cannot achieve except through incarnation. The goal of existence is to gain this perfected knowledge and return to the perfected state of oneness with the ultimate spirit or God, that we have emanated from, and from which we remain an individualized part. As they die out of the earth, they are born into some other spheres, until they arrive at that state of perfect self-consciousness, which antedates their birth into those fully completed organisms capable of maintaining an immortal existence. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of evolution in this, right? Um, through reincarnation, or, or some sort of, through incarnation, we are trying to evolve as a spirit so that we can reach a higher plane and become a celestial being. Yeah, become like more of a perfect being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Humans are mundane spirits, with sub-mundane or elementary spirits below them on the spiritual hierarchy and super-mundane or planetary spirits above them. Just as the human body has its corresponding eternal breath of spirit derived from the one source, so too do all aspects of nature and the universe. The spiritual essence of the natural world are the elementaries. The elementaries are neither wholly spiritual nor entirely material in substance. 
The corporeity of their bodies is too dense to inhabit the spirit spheres or consort with purely spiritual existences, yet not sufficiently palatable to become visible to material eyes. In one of my favorite episodes in Ghostland, the Chevalier visited a small Scottish town plagued by demonic possessions, riding through the forests of Scotland at the foggy fall of dusk. The author's horse became troubled, and he was suddenly caught up in a vision of elemental demons. We are the salamander people! Yes, salamanders! And we will kill all of the humans! Die, 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 for the fire god! Fire, 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 fire. Hey! Hey, horse. 9-11 was an inside job. Hey, Chevalier, did you know that corgis are to direct the sentence of guinea pigs? The professor jarred him from his vision, and they were enveloped in a thick mist, which followed them all the way back to the village where they were staying. That night, the Chevalier was visited by a large, shadowy figure who confined him to his room and caused it to fill with the same threatening mist. The Chevalier was transported in a vision to a great Gothic church filled with worshippers. Elementary monsters hovered ominously over them, waiting for their opportunity. In an instant, the whole host of demons swooped down on the kneeling crowd and vanished, immersed as it seemed in the bodies of their victims. I saw them no more, but in their places, the women and children themselves assumed the attitudes of the fiends that possessed them. They sprang up with whoops, yells, and shrieks of perfect frenzy. Little children began to scale the walls and columns, run along the giddy heights on the windowsills, and suspend themselves, coiled up like squirrels or monkeys. The Chevalier saw an image of himself entering the church, and the elementary spirits instantly vaporizing, turning into mist and ascending out of the bodies of their victims and through the roof of the church. Ew. That's why I don't go to church. <laughs> Same, Shannon. <laughs> the next day, visiting a beautiful village at the foot of a mountain range, covered in highland heather. Oh yeah, she's way better than lowland heather. Honestly? Yeah. Like, what a bitch. Ooh. With a barbarous highland name, which I am not able to recall, says the Chevalier. He found himself at the same church that had appeared to him in his vision. He rushed into the church and threw a crowd of gawking men to the altar where three clergymen were trying in vain to exorcise the women and children writhing there, possessed exactly as he had seen in his vision the night before. Come, let me tweak your nipples, boy! Come, come here! Heather? Later, von Marx and the Chevalier learned that a girl taken to visions had been cursed by the fairy people not to eat until she danced among them. Same. That's happened too many times. She pined away, starving until she finally relented and danced with them, bringing several friends along with her. Through the dance, she and her friends became possessed, and the curse spread to brothers, sisters, and mothers throughout the village. Wait, not that fathers? Sound that bad. Primarily women. Well, that's not right. Well, I, I guess that the uh, elementals were misogynists. Mm. Of I'm course. A, I'm offended. Yeah. <laughs> this episode recalls an eerily similar series of events which took place at Mordsine in Switzerland around 1860. These events, unlike the tale in Ghostland, are actually part of the historical record. Britain actually detailed them in her 500-page history of 19th century miracles, an international catalog of strange and occult happenings around the world. That's a long book. It, yeah. <laughs> In Mordsine, a girl distressed her family when she began running aimlessly, climbing high trees and perching on rooftops. She became wholly intractable, was given to fits of hysteria, passionate weeping, and general aberration from her customary modest behavior. Hold up. What does intractable mean? Is that, like, unattractive? No, like, she, you couldn't do anything about her. Oh. She was 
all in with this rooftop thing. <laughs> Aren't we all? Parkour? <laughs> Over the next 10 days, 50 women ranging in age from 7 to 50 years old had been seized and were exhibiting crawling, climbing, leaping, wild singing, furious swearing. This spread eventually obsessing several hundred women and children and scores of young men. Okay, well, if my mom, like, called the police every time I did any of those things, like... Does it happen a lot? <laughs> they didn't just call the police. They called the emperor. Uh, well. Louis Napoleon sent troops to quell the disturbance, but this only made it worse. Some of the soldiers fell victim to the same plague. It's like if they called the police and then they joined in on the cursing and climbing on rooftops. If you're convincing enough. So the state sent an army, an army of priests now. Mm. Led well. by a bishop, and they also failed. I That's wonder what scares why. Me. If you can't beat them, join them, right? <laughs> Am I right, ladies? <laughs> the bishop tried to give a high mass, but women leapt around and shrieked defiantly while men beat their breasts and tore their hair. Finally, Dr. Constance, the medical authority, arrived. So, Dr. Constance, find anybody um, who accused anybody else of using magic in any way. Um, so in this way, he sort of quelled any talk of possession or, or magical acts in the town. Um, and then the other thing he did is he started to lock people up. He put people in asylums or, or put them in hospitals, and, and barring any of that, he just exiled them from Mortzine. So uh, this, is, this is the way he dealt with the problem. The obsession was never actually cured, only scattered to the four winds, where it continued on, dissipating as the victims died off, and then eventually vanished. Mortzing gives proof to the Chevalier's strange experience in the Scottish Highlands, if not absolute proof of his theory of elementaries. Certainly, it never occurred to any of the various authorities who attempted to cure the afflicted to utilize the occult magnetic power of an occult adept like the Chevalier Lewis to be. And this may be the point in bringing up Mortzine at all. What do you think? Is possession real? I, th I think like in a lot of, well, I don't want to say like a lot of, but in religions and stuff like that, it's a very real thing. Because, I mean, I grew up Christian or like in Christianity mm -hmm. and possession, like it seemed to happen quite a bit throughout the Bible. Like there's the whole pigs and stuff like that. And they just jumped off a cliff. I think it also becomes like a, a mental thing like you can very easily like you if you look at like the like i don't want to like bring the evangelical like <laughs> the you know the church into it and stuff but you know they have all those big like uh displays of you are possessed by a demon but i will free you and it's like mm -hmm. a big show and it's very easy i feel like in that moment to be like oh yes i am possessed you like know? you're caught up in the moment kind of becomes a show suggestion kind yeah. of yeah but not all spirits are lowly in nature or ill-intentioned. There are also super-mundane or planetary spirits who exist above the human world, residing mostly in the cosmos, and they can aid and advance the cause of human spiritual development. These are the tutelary spirits and planetary angels. Ooh. Each planet has a tutelary angel. <laughs> I like that word. Keep saying this word. Tutelary. Ooh. Um, who Ooh. serves as a spiritual sun and receives light, heat, and force from God, the central sun. So it goes from right. God to your spiritual son, to you. Well, that makes sense. Yep. These angels also provide spiritual energy to the physical suns on which the systems of planets depend, serving as the soul of the solar system. 
Planetary spirits may be invoked and can provide great truths of the universe unattainable to mortals without their aid. So you can call them down and ask them questions. How? What kind of questions would you ask them? What do you want to know? Um, what can I ask them? Anything. They know it all. They really? know all. Well, they know a lot of things. They don't know as much as God, but Will they're they, the next ooh. best. Will they tell us things? Or maybe if they're feeling like you're worthy. Who did 9-11? <laughs> Are reptilians real? Are corgis and... Um, it's a fact, okay. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to... We don't need to ask. We don't need to we ask. <laughs> The occult adept can only progress by maintaining strict control of the wily elementary spirits and invoking the aid of these beneficent supermundane archangels and planetary spirits. The primary means for achieving this control and communion is the magician's will. So in the 1860s and 70s, the occult revival pioneers tended to talk about the adept's active will in contrast to the passive channeling of the medium. The medium was subject to the spirits who controlled her or acted through her. Cora Scott Richmond was possessed by her spirit controls. She couldn't pick who they were, and she couldn't decide what they said, how long they spoke for, or even how many spoke at once. She went from being controlled by the spirit of a dead German physician in her early teens to a native girl, and then finally a whole crew of spirits speaking at once. Helena Blavatsky argued that mediumship by its very nature is a corrupted form of adeptship, or what she called mediatorship. Mediumship is the yielding of weak, mortal flesh to the control and suggestions of spirits and intelligences other than one's own immortal demon. It is literally obsession and possession. The Renaissance magician, who the Chevalier held up as a more desirable example to follow, conjured spirits at will. On three separate visits to America, the Chevalier discovered a significant number of spiritualist adherents have withdrawn their public support from a movement where the taint of human folly and impurity has become so evident, owing to the degradation, lack of organic power, evil repute, and gradual but sure decadence of modern spiritualism. Fraud was becoming a serious problem for mediums. The Banner of Light doubted the authenticity of the Eddie's manifestations, much like Olivia and Shannon. The Banner of Light? The Banner of Light, the spiritualist wow. publication <laughs> of record. Uh, despite Alcott's tacit endorsement of the Eddie's, they still said, probably fake, fake news. The most famous full-form materializing medium, Florence Cook, had been caught faking when the spirit she always produced, named Katie King, we talked about her a bit earlier, was recognized drinking at a local pub after the seance ended. Hey, don't Bad judge move. your local spirits. <laughs> <laughs> they gotta drink, too. Is that a pun? The spirits need spirits. Ah. Oh, get them. And the spirit photographer, William Mumler, who produced photographs of ghostly figures hovering over his sitter's shoulders, was tried for fraud in 1869, with none other than P.T. Barnum, the king of humbug himself, and circus pioneer. Oh my gosh, I just saw that movie. Yeah. Well, he testified against this guy. No way. I don't believe it. They him. didn't Anyways. put that in the movie. I know. I should have, why didn't they add this to it? <laughs> to remedy all these brazen grifters, the Chevalier suggested a school for prophets at which mediums might study the laws of spiritual intercourse and learn to control the communion with the spirit world. We mentioned this a little bit in the last episode. Can we start a school of prophets? Right now? Yeah. How much should we charge? Well, I, I don't want to pay money. Oh, so you want a free school for profits? Don't you? Yeah. All right, do you think well, we could get federal grant money for this little FAFSA? Listeners at home, <laughs> please send in your... <laughs> please send in to our Patreon um, yes. to start our school Your Patreon membership will get you... Uh, classes such as... No, it should be a 10-day trial. A 10-day okay. trial. Oh, are we a pyramid scheme now? <laughs> what would be the curriculum at a school for profits? Our 10-day free trial 
So, um, you know, like uh, the fanciest robes, 101. Yeah, the fanciest you know. robes. You, have to, you gotta dress the part. Um. <laughs> the shift from the passive medium to the active magician mirrored developments in the relatively new field of psychology at the time. After all, if mediums wanted anyone to believe in the legitimacy of their practice, the very least they had to prove was that they weren't insane. In his Principles of Mental Physiology, the influential neurophysiologist W.B. Carpenter devoted an entire chapter to the significance of the will. For Carpenter, our judgments, belief, and worldview are governed by a controlling will which consciously selects the ideas that best suit our perspective. The records of absence of mind afford abundant examples of the absurd incongruities which occur when the will is temporarily prevented by the mental preoccupation from summoning common sense to check the ideas which external impressions suggest, while those of insanity in which there is a persistent deficiency in the power of self-direction of the thoughts show that no belief is too absurd to be accepted, however inconsistent with the most direct and most constant experience. A passive medium, channeling the spirits either physically or vocally while in trance, by definition fails to exert self-direction on her mental experience, which opens the medium's mind to an infinitely variable supply of beliefs and ideas, which may or may not be entirely ridiculous. The medium is like the dreamer, and should not trust any of the impressions she receives while her will is inoperative. Worse, mediumship can cause a mental degeneracy. As Carpenter explains, stimulants like alcohol, opium, and hashish are designed to exalt the automatic activity of the mind while diminishing the power of volitional control, which can result in a permanent weakening of the volitional power. Maybe so, be careful. No. So all that, so basically he's saying that if like a medium has, okay, so they have themselves open, so anything can come in, whether it's true or not. Right. And they operating with their unconscious, have to, not their conscious mind. Then sort out what they choose to... They don't, he says. They're just giving you whatever comes through them. But So it could... They will immediately say whatever, and it could be ridiculous or it might be true. could be nonsense, know. yeah. You have no way of knowing. Does, does the medium know? The medium has no way of knowing, says Carpenter. Yes. Because only okay. your conscious mind can actively choose good, reasonable information. So you're, hmm. you're depending on the idea that your mind will sort out what's true? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Carpenter was a passionate anti-spiritualist. Um, and so he probably would have extended these ideas directly to the medium's trance. Mm. In Ghostland, the active will of the occult adept is literally the cure to the possessions plaguing the little Scottish church. The possessed lack the power of will to protect themselves from these elementary influences, not unlike the medium who ebbs and flows at the whims of the spirits. Only a thoroughly trained mind and spirit can serve as a true protection against these forces. Denying or dismissing their existence is no guard against their awesome power. Will is the only solution. That's putting all your eggs in one basket. Angels may solicit or demons may tempt but none can compel the spirit within to action unless it first surrenders the will to the investing power. But while the Chevalier's occult control perfectly aligned with these psychological theories of his day, the elementaries he was controlling ran counter to a purely physical concept of the mind. Which brings us to a very late in the episode, Brief History. Our topic today, 19th century American neurophysiology or the way our mind and brain relate to each other. In the first decades of American independence, the asylum was a place of reform where the insane went to be re rehabilitated so that they could become productive contributors to the American capitalist experiment. Hello, citizen. Your dog is speaking to you, is he? 
No need to worry. We shall shut that mud up post-haste with careful system of individual care and treatment. Early successes with this system led to increased reliance on the asylum, which caused the asylums to grow larger and quality of care to diminish. The populations at some asylums ballooned five times over between 1870 and 1900. Yeah, they were basically punished by their own success. They were doing really well, so everyone was like, let's take grandma to the asylum. Mm -hmm. When the quality of care diminished, wealthier patients moved to smaller private institutions, placing a greater financial burden on local governments to maintain the asylums. Grandmama should not be housed among all these low-rent lunatics. She is a high-class invalid deserving the highest care. In the early part of the 19th century, physiologists and neurophysiologists tended to believe that moral or psychological conditions precipitated waste to build up in the brain, a condition they called vascular brain congestion, which caused insanity. Yeah, like when you have a cold and your nose gets stuffed up. It's a cold for your brain. Yeah, cold for your brain. <laughs> I wow. get that all the time. That makes it sound so much better. Um, but still bad. <laughs> no. Closely monitored care and therapy were discovered to be effective tools to rehabilitate suffering patients. Cultural historian Philip Cushman argues that with the asylums growing too large to reasonably create the conditions for rehabilitation, psychologists fell back in, on purely physical, incurable causes for insanity. Yeah, if there's uh, nothing we can do about it, then we don't have to bother treating or curing you. We just lock you up and keep you here. Well, that's yeah. a cop-out. Following Darwin and the final decades of the century, hereditary degeneration overcame environmental factors as the main cause assigned to lunacy. Parents passed their dysfunctional brains down to their children, often worsening the condition through alcoholism or drug use before conception. Yeah, you were just born that way and there's nothing, that's just how it is, nothing we can do about it. Your grandmother was a drunk, your mother was a floozy, and there's pretty much nothing we can do for you. Not surprisingly, purely physical views of the brain began to dominate conversations in neurophysiology. Franz Joseph Gall's phrenology, which placed different aspects of personality in different parts of the brain, was an important part of the conversation. And with the asylum staff overburdened, the impetus for re rehabilitation fell on patients' own self-monitoring, self-analysis, and self-control. Yeah, there's no one around to watch them, so they're going to have to watch themselves. Great system. The patient's conscious will become a major factor in their ability to manage and correct the physical dysfunctions in their brains. It wouldn't be until 1882 when J.M. Charcot presented a paper on hypnotism that official psychology would begin to recognize the unconscious as an element of mental life, fundamentally changing the conversation while at the same time maintaining the notion that the mind could be reduced to the physical brain, a notion that has persisted all the way into the 21st century. Yeah, hypnosis is just mesmerism by other terms, right? Mesmerism goes all the way back to the 18th century, and it's the yeah. root of transmediumship and all these occult phenomena. But psychology didn't want to own that lineage, yeah. right? So they created a new word, and they studied it in the lab, and now it's not mesmerism anymore, it's hypnosis. And now everyone's obsessed with it as a way to deal with trauma. Yeah, yeah. Which... <laughs> or childbirth. Yeah. So... Um, What's fascinating about all this is that if we reduce the mind to the brain, there's no room for ghosts or supernatural phenomena anymore. There's no room for an eternal soul. You are your right. brain, and when you die, that organ dies with you, and that's it for you. Yeah, so this whole gone. world of spirits and astral powers is out the window. If it's like we irrelevant just, to it. Yeah, mm -hmm. we, we get on board with this theory. Uh, but there's no reason why we have to. This has been a very brief history of 19th century America neurophysiology. Thank you. 
So yeah, if the brain is the only source of mental activity and identity, how did the people of Mortzine all become possessed by the same mental illness? Why did it exhibit itself in the same way across hundreds of victims, and why did it fail to dissipate regardless of medical, religious, or state intervention? Uh, skeptics love to throw around this term mass hysteria. Uh, mass hysteria is definitely their watchword, but the culture itself would not have supported belief in demonic possession in 1860 more than a hundred years after the Enlightenment came to Europe and put an end to all the angels and demons that were constantly possessing us. Let alone in a group this large, and let alone for the full duration of some of these people's lives. This is a, a pretty extensive mass hysteria. Without the disembodied intelligence of the elementary spirit, how else can we explain the afflicted Scottish peasants in the Chevalier's little village church, or the incurable possessed of a small town in Switzerland? And if psychology's answer, as it was in Mortzine, was to lock these people away in asylums indefinitely, who could possibly come to their aid? These answers and more on the next Occult Confessions. Olivia, bring us home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors until such time as we get together and do it again. All right, again, we are posting these episodes just as quickly as we can in our first yes. series of The American Occult. Um, so, uh, Olivia, if they want to reach out to us, how can they find us? Um, if you'd like to hear more occult confessions, uh, please make sure that you hit subscribe. Go ahead and visit our Patreon. Um, consider giving us a dollar or five a month to keep this program going. We're going to have bonuses and stuff for all of our Patreon members. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is going to be at podcast and then in all caps occult. Our Facebook page, you can find us just by searching um, occult confessions. And our website is www.occultconfessions.com. Yeah, and you can visit that and uh, you can find all sorts of resources, um, different books that we bring up, and, and all that is posted right on the website. And so. a link to our Patreon should be there, right? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so, uh, our cast of characters today included Savannah Verrett playing Emma Harding Britton. We had Brandon Walls as the Chevalier Louis Deby. Uh, Jacob Wheatley played our Andrew Jackson Davis. Morgan Jung played Colonel Henry Alcott. Uh, and okay. Olivia Literal as Helena Blavatsky. Thank you. And we look forward to meeting you again next week for the next exciting episode uncovering the Chevalier's secret to the American occult on this occult confession. Bye.